So we'll continue with the book of First Timothy, and today we'll take a look at chapter three. And as we have seen in chapters uh, one and two, uh, Paul is writing this uh, epistle to Timothy, and Paul is uh, establishing his authority as the apostle, and he's writing this uh, epistle uh, through the gift of the Holy Spirit. He's guided by the Lord uh, in terms of what he is writing, and we saw that he is emphasizing that. Uh, Timothy should be equipped so that he can convey that the sound doctrine and pure gospel should be maintained in all the churches. And we saw that uh, he should fight the good fight uh, to defend the sound doctrine and the gospel of Christ. So that was very important for Paul uh, in establishing churches. And he wanted to make sure that the churches that are going astray uh, from the sound doctrine, they should be brought back. Uh, to the sound uh, teachings. And last week we saw from chapter two where we were exhorted that we need to pray uh, for those uh, who are in authority, whether they are in the government or even at workplaces, we need to pray for the leaders uh, so that they would make the right decisions and we can also live in peace, we can live in liberty. And we also saw uh, from chapter two, verse five, that Lord Jesus Christ, uh, he's the only mediator between God and man. And in the uh, last part of chapter two, we saw the role of women uh, in a mixed uh, church setting uh, where we have both uh, brothers and sisters. Uh, Paul exhorts us that uh, women uh, should not teach, uh, they should not pray publicly, and they should dress uh, modestly. But at the same time, we also saw that uh, that is simply God's uh, divine order. Uh, it doesn't mean that uh, women are inferior or they have less uh, intellect or they are less uh, talented, but that is the way God set up the divine order uh, in a mixed setting. And of course, the women can teach uh, their children, uh, even as Timothy was taught uh, by his mother and grandmother. So Paul is writing this uh, epistle, and we call it the pastoral epistles or leadership epistles. And it gives good guidelines uh, for leaders. And of course, uh, many of the principles that we see, uh, we can apply to everyone, uh, not just the leaders. So in chapter three, uh, he talks about the qualification of uh, elders in verses one through seven. Uh, then he talks about the qualification of deacons in verses 8 through 13. Uh, then he speaks about the house of God. Then he ends with uh, verse 16, uh, the mystery of godliness. Here, uh, Paul begins uh, in verse 1 by saying, This is a true thing. If a man desired the office of a bishop, uh, he desired a good work. So bishop, uh, the word bishop is synonymous with what we may see uh, in many churches. Uh, they could be called as pastors, they could be called as overseers, or they could be called as elders. And also as we go through the New Testament, we often see uh, the leadership uh, is a shared leadership. So we don't see like one elder uh, managing the entire church or shepherding the entire flock. Uh, there is always a sense uh, that the leadership is shared and people are working together uh, for for the Lord. As we read in uh, Acts 14, uh, 23, it says, and when they had ordained them elders in every church, uh, which again uh, suggests uh, that not one person was appointed, but multiple people were appointed uh, to take care uh, of the flock. 
And they did that uh, after praying and fasting. Uh, they commended them to the Lord on whom they believed. So we see that uh, it is not an ordinary thing or it is not a simple thing that we just appoint someone, uh, but they did it with fasting and praying. So the appointment itself uh, is coming from the Lord. When we fast and pray, uh, the Lord is the one who's leading uh, the church in terms of who should be appointed as elders. So if there is no fasting and praying taking place uh, before ordaining elders, then oftentimes uh, mistakes uh, might be made uh, because we might be going through, we might be making decisions based on what we see rather than how the Spirit is leading us. And again, in Acts 20, 17, where Paul meets with uh, all the elders, uh, again, we see the picture that he's not meeting with one person, uh, but he is meeting with elders, which again tells us there's more than one. And James uh, 5.14, uh, it tells, is any sick among you, let him call for the elders of the church. Uh, again, it tells us uh, there is a plurality uh, in leadership. So Paul also says uh, it is a good office or a work uh, to aspire to, or it is something good uh, to strive for. Uh, but the appointment, as he said, should be made by the Holy Spirit and not by man. And at the same time, he makes it clear that uh, the ministry is work. Uh, it is not something for enjoyment or for fun. Uh, it is not for those who are lazy or for people who are not committed or who may have the wrong motive uh, that they are looking for power. Or in many cases today, they might be looking for money uh, using the ministry to uh, benefit them uh, financially. But that is not the purpose. And again, in Acts 20, 28, uh, it is reinforced, uh, take heed therefore unto yourself and to all the flock over the which uh, the Holy Ghost has made you overseers to feed the church of God, which he has purchased uh, with his own blood. So the church of God is very precious uh, in the eyes of the Lord because to redeem the church, uh, he had to shed his own precious blood. So obviously he cares about the church and he wants to make sure that the overseers are uh, appointed by the Holy Spirit. Uh, it is the process that takes place uh, through fasting and praying. So that's what we see in the uh, First Testament churches. And that is what we should see uh, even today. And when we go to the next uh, six verses, uh, we see that uh, he comes up with a long list of uh, qualities that he's looking for. And many times uh, we might have questions, uh, do children of godly parents uh, automatically qualify? So of, in the world, we see that uh, the sons of kings will take the throne, uh, but that should not be the case uh, in a church uh, setting. Uh, just because the parents were gifted, uh, parents were godly, uh, does not mean that the children should be placed in that position. But we often see that happening uh, even today. And just because a person is naturally talented uh, should not qualify them just because they're hardworking or they're coming to church uh, for a long time or because they are rich and making donations or maybe they have the knowledge uh, because they went to seminary or they might have status in society or simply or they might be old or elderly uh, should that qualify them. So none of these would uh, automatically qualify a person. But as we read in Acts 20, 28, 
uh, the it is a divine appointment uh, by the Holy Spirit. And even when Samuel appointed the king, uh, we again see uh, the mistake that could be easily made uh, if he was looking on the outward appearance. But the Lord reminded him that the Lord does not see as a man sees, for man looks at the outward appearance, but the Lord uh, looks at the heart. And obviously, we cannot look at the heart. So that is why uh, we pray. And like the first church did, uh, we have to fast and pray before we make these decisions. And as we go through uh, verse 2 to 7, uh, we see that uh, Paul lists a long list of uh, qualities or qualifications uh, for the elders or leaders in a church. So he mentions uh, 16 of them. And many of these we can see are based uh, on the character or based on the conduct uh, of the person. Uh, it doesn't really talk about their knowledge or intellect or talents and so on. So many of these qualities are what uh, you would like to see uh, in a leader or in a person who's guiding you and so on. So the first one is uh, blameless, uh, which means uh, they should be living a life of uh, integrity and as we have discussed before, uh, nobody is uh, sinless. So blameless uh, does not mean they are sinless. Uh, but when they commit a sin, uh, they would confess and they would set things right. Uh, but they would be continually uh, sanctifying themselves, uh, continually uh, purifying themselves, continually uh, heading to a higher level. And they should be husband of one wife. And they should be faithful and devoted to one wife. Uh, they should be vigilant or cautious, alert, uh, sober, and it says good behavior. Uh, they should be hospitable or welcoming uh, to believers, uh, to strangers and sinners. So this could be in the church setting. It could be in the home setting. So wherever you're meeting people, uh, you should be welcoming them, uh, whether within the church or at home. And they should be teachers of sound doctrine. So that is something that Paul was uh, emphasizing uh, in chapter one also. And that is why Paul is sending Timothy to this church uh, so that they could be uh, taught uh, the sound doctrine. So this one uh, is different from the other qualities that we see, which are mostly based on character and conduct. And he says uh, they should not be alcoholic. They should not be violent. They should not be greedy for riches. And again, uh, if you're coveting uh, for money or if you're going after money, you may end up making many wrong decisions, uh, even though you might be serving in a church. And you need to be patient. Uh, you should not be a fighter or looking for conflicts, but you should be a peacemaker rather than looking for conflicts. And they should not be covetous. Uh, so we generally use the term covetous uh, in the context of wealth. Uh, but in a church setting, uh, it could also mean uh, coveting for positions or coveting for ministries or coveting to do certain things. Uh, even though it may not be in God's will, uh, we may be seeking certain things. And they should be a leader and shepherd at home, which means uh, they should be taking good care uh, of their home, uh, providing leadership, uh, taking care of the children, making sure that they are raised 
uh, properly. And he goes on to say that if the elders or the leaders, if they're not able to take care of their own house, uh, which is a much uh, smaller unit, uh, if they're not able to establish boundaries, uh, if they're not able to uh, exercise the right principles, then uh, it would be hard for them to do it in a bigger setting where the challenges would be much more, uh, where it is much more uh, complex. And they should not be recently uh, saved or they should not be new believers uh, because when you put new believers uh, in a leadership setting, then it could lead to pride or it could lead to mistakes uh, because the only way we gain experience uh, is with time. Uh, so if you're immediately put into ministry, that could lead to mistakes. And they should have a good testimony in church and also uh, outside church. And obviously the devil or the Satan uh, is always on the lookout uh, to destroy uh, families. So it starts by attacking Christian families and the second would be to attack uh, the church. And within the church, uh, they, the devil has set up many traps so that they can bring down the leaders. So obviously the Satan is not uh, happy uh, when a church is doing good or when the leaders are doing good or when the families are strong uh, in a church. So it will always try to bring uh, dissent, try to bring divisions, uh, which we see all the time. Uh, we see that within families, we see that within churches. So that is really uh, a trap that is set up by the devil uh, to make the church weak. So those are the 16 qualities, and we see that many of them uh, have to do with the conduct and the character of a person. And there is not much uh, emphasis, uh, at least based on this portion, uh, on gifts other than what we see in number seven, which is uh, teacher. So when we see, uh, look at a church uh, setting, uh, the way Paul is describing, uh, we see uh, he's making a distinction between the elders uh, and the deacons. And of course, uh, Christ uh, is the head of the church. And in many churches, uh, we see the distinction between elders and deacons uh, that is clearly laid out where there are two officers uh, with elders and leaders, deacons, sorry. So in the next section, uh, he talks about the qualities or qualification of deacons, uh, which is very similar to what he talks about in verses uh, two to seven. Okay, so as we read this uh, section, we see that uh, the qualities are very similar to what we found uh, in case of the uh, elders. The only uh, thing that was missing was the teaching is missing here. So we see that many of the practical things uh, are covered. Uh, in case of deacons. So uh, deacons, uh, they're not inferior to elders. So in many assemblies, uh, many brethren assemblies, we see that they make a distinction uh, between elders and deacons. And for the most part, the deacons, uh, they would complement uh, the role of elders and they would uh, provide the support uh, that is needed for all the ministries. And obviously we need uh, both the elders and deacons uh, the way it is defined. Uh, for the effective uh, functioning of the church. So if you think of elders as taking the lead uh, in spiritual ministries or overseeing the spiritual ministries, 
uh, deacons can be seen as uh, people who are taking care of the practical things or the operational things. And obviously, they both uh, have to coexist. Uh, they complement uh, each other uh, so that the church is uh, more healthy and more efficiently run. And in Acts chapter 6, uh, we saw an example where the responsibilities were divided among those who focused on prayer and God's work and those who took care of the widows or serving tables. So a distinction is made uh, between the spiritual ministries uh, and the day-to-day -day operations or the practical things of taking care of the widows. So it says, in those days, when the number of disciples was multiplied, there arose murmuring of the Grecians against the Hebrews because their widows were neglected uh, in the daily ministration. Then the 12 called the multitude of the disciples unto them and said, uh, it is not reason that we should leave the word of God and serve tables. Uh, wherefore, brethren, look ye out among you seven men of honest report, uh, full of the Holy Ghost and wisdom, uh, whom we may appoint over this business, but we will give ourselves uh, continually to prayer uh, and to the ministry of the word. So this passage uh, reminds us that uh, both are equally important. And when we tend to overemphasize one uh, area of the church, uh, it will tend to negligence uh, in the other area, and it would lead to uh, confusion. It would lead to all kinds of murmurings and all kinds of problems. And here we see that the disciples are making a wise uh, decision uh, where they are uh, recognizing uh, the practical things, but at the same time, giving preeminence or priority also uh, to what they were already doing, which is the prayer and the ministry of the word. So this is the first example that we see in the first church where the responsibilities are clearly divided uh, between the spiritual and the practical. And the qualifications uh, are very similar to what we saw in the case uh, of elders. And, uh, and we see uh, nine of them here. Uh, the first one is reverence, or it could mean, which could mean respect uh, to God and also to respect to one another and not to be double ten, which means uh, they need to be truthful. Uh, they should not be uh, hypocrites and they should not be uh, gossiping. So what we say uh, should be the truth, uh, even as we saw uh, last week, uh, that one of the uh, traits uh, of a Christian is that they should always uh, speak the truth because a devil is the father of lies. And when we speak lies, we associate ourselves with the devil uh, and not God. So for a Christian, there is no reason to uh, take a vote because every time we speak, uh, it should be the truth and people should be able to trust us uh, for the words we speak and there should be no doubt about what we say. And they should not be alcoholics. So uh, when we read the scriptures, there is, uh, there is a fine line between what the Bible says uh, about alcohol. So there are verses uh, where we may say that uh, in that culture, people used to drink, but at the same time, uh, Paul is clear that uh, even if that was a practice, uh, those who are serving as leaders, uh, they should not be alcoholics. 
And the same way, uh, they should not be greedy for money. Uh, they should be strong uh, in their faith and they should believe and practice a sound doctrine. And we'll come to this at the end. Uh, and they should be tested and proved, uh, just like we saw with the elders. Uh, they should not be uh, immature or they should not be new Christians. So people who are put uh, in leadership roles, uh, they should have proven that they're fit uh, for that role. So they should have the experience and they should have a testimony uh, within the church uh, so that people receive them as leaders or receive them as elders or deacons. And they should have godly wives uh, who are well-behaved and who also have good character. So they should also not be slanderers or gossipers and they should be faithful uh, in all things. So, so again, the wives are pictured as someone who are supporting and complementing the role uh, of the leaders. So in that sense, if they don't have a good character, then it also destroys the ministry uh, of the deacons and elders. And similar to what we saw with the elders, uh, they should be good uh, stewards of their families. Uh, they should be good stewards of their children and be able to take good care of them. And they should be husband of one wife. And uh, this we saw this, which is good leaders at home, uh, ruling their children well. And again, the same argument can be made that if they're not able to take care of a small unit, then they're not worthy of taking care of a bigger unit, which is the church with much more, uh, many more complexities. And uh, we're not going to spend too much time, but uh, these verses are brought up where uh, Phoebe was uh, actually a woman, but uh, in NIV, it mentions her as a deacon, but in King James Version, it says uh, she's a servant uh, of the church. So this might uh, raise uh, questions whether deacons uh, can be women or deacons can be only men. So again, uh, uh, when we get into titles, uh, it could be just a matter of title. So what is more important is uh, what they are doing and how they are serving the Lord or how they are serving uh, within the church uh, setting and whether that is consistent uh, with what we read uh, in the rest of the scriptures. So, so instead of getting caught up uh, in the title, which varies uh, with the version that you read, uh, it may be better to just focus on what role they are playing and whether that is consistent with the rest of the scriptures. And verse 13 says, For they that have used the office of deacon uh, will purchase to themselves a good degree and great boldness uh, in the faith, uh, which is in Christ Jesus. Uh, the verse is not very clear, but seems to suggest uh, that if you are continuing in that office, uh, it would lead to a reward. Uh, it would lead to a blessing uh, in the form of spiritual blessing, uh, which is boldness in faith, uh, which is in Christ Jesus. So those who are faithful uh, in serving the Lord, uh, those who are faithful uh, in laboring in the vineyard of the Lord, uh, they will be recognized and they would be promoted uh, by the Lord. So recognition and promotion uh, always uh, comes from the Lord. 
uh, it doesn't come from the church. Uh, it doesn't come from the people. And if it is coming from the people, then that is uh, probably not uh, worth it or it's not valuable. But when it comes from the Lord, uh, that is true uh, recognition, that is true promotion, and that is where true contentment and true joy uh, will be. And the work of deacons, uh, as we saw earlier, uh, many of them are engaged uh, in practical things. So they may not be always visible uh, like the elders who might be engaged uh, in the ministry of the word or in prayer. But we know that God is uh, watching everyone and God is watching the intent uh, of our heart. And God is uh, keeping a score and he's also going to reward uh, those who are faithfully serving him. So as we read from the passage of Acts chapter 6, uh, Stephen and Philip, uh, they were among those deacons uh, who were appointed uh, to take care of the widows. And as we follow the life of Stephen and Philip, uh, we can see the progression in their life. And we also see the recognition and promotion by the Lord, as Paul says in verse 13. So we know that Stephen, uh, he was given uh, boldness uh, to witness. And uh, he, he was eventually martyred for his faith, uh, but he saw the Lord Jesus Christ uh, rising uh, to receive him uh, in glory in Acts 7.60. And we also know that Philip, uh, he became a great uh, evangelist uh, in Acts uh, chapter 8. So these might be just uh, examples to illustrate that uh, when we are faithful to the Lord and when we are faithful in doing the work uh, that the Lord has uh, assigned to us, uh, it would also lead to recognition and promotion by the Lord, who is keeping track of everything. And Matthew 25, 21 says, The Lord said unto him, Well done, thou good and faithful servant, uh, thou hast been faithful over a few things. I will make thee ruler over many things. Uh, enter thou uh, into the joy of thy Lord. So that is the what we want to hear uh, at the end of our work. Uh, we should not be seeking uh, recognition from the church or from the people, but we should seek uh, recognition from the Lord, uh, who, who is looking for people who are faithful uh, in whatever they are doing, whether it's a small thing or a big thing. Uh, we need to be faithful and remain accountable to the Lord, and he will reward us, and we don't have to worry about the people. And in verse uh, 14 and 15, uh, he takes a deep, uh, talks about the house of God. So Paul is uh, writing to Timothy, uh, whom he is living in that church, and he is going away. And he is asking Timothy to take care of the church, uh, to teach them the right doctrine. And those who are going astray, uh, he is uh, asking him, asking Timothy uh, to confront them. And he's also equipping uh, Timothy uh, through this letter uh, in terms of how to conduct the church. So in verse uh, 14, he says, These things write I unto thee, hoping to come unto thee shortly. But if I tarry long, that thou mayest know how thou ought to behave thyself in the house of God, uh, which is the church of the living God, uh, the pillar and ground of the truth. So that is something uh, that is for all of us. Uh, all of us should know uh, how to behave uh, in the house of God. And all of us uh, should recognize that the church is the church of the living God. 
uh, it doesn't belong to a person, uh, it doesn't belong uh, to a denomination, or it doesn't belong to a group of people. Uh, the church uh, belongs to God, and he is the head of the church, and we should, uh, and since he is the head, uh, we have to play by the rules uh, that he has set. Uh, we have to live uh, within the boundaries uh, that he has set uh, for the church. So the Lord is the one who sets the divine order for the church. And the truth uh, is given to us uh, in the scriptures, uh, which is the sound doctrine, which is the teachings of the apostles. So this verse also tells us Paul's motive in writing. So since Paul might be away, uh, for a while, he wants to make sure that Timothy has the knowledge uh, and he is equipped uh, with the truth uh, in terms of how to conduct the church. So house of God is seen as the church of the living God. So it is not a temple of idols. So we don't see any idols uh, in our churches. And he speaks about pillar, uh, which gives us an image uh, that a pillar is something that supports uh, the structure and he speaks about the ground of truth, which we can say uh, is the foundation. So we should know on what uh, we are building the structure. And it, obviously the foundation is not correct. If the foundation is not the truth uh, of the gospel or the salvation experience or Christ himself, uh, then the pillar, no matter how fancy it might be, uh, it's not going to stand uh, during tested time. And in Genesis uh, 28, 16, uh, also we read uh, the term uh, house of God, uh, which is when Jacob uh, had a dream and then he built an altar. And we see uh, the house of God or God's uh, dwelling place. And when we look at the scriptures uh, from Genesis uh, to Revelation, uh, we see that God's desire was to have communion uh, with his people uh, right from the beginning, from the Garden of Eden and all the way to heaven. So obviously in Adam and Eve uh, that we read in Genesis, uh, they had direct uh, communion with God. And then we, when we come to Exodus, uh, we see that God tells them to build a tabernacle. And he says, uh, let them make me a sanctuary that I may dwell uh, among them. So God is not looking for a place uh, for himself, but he's looking for a place uh, within us. So that is why uh, he moved with Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden and in the tabernacle. Uh, he was supposed to be there, but it was also a place uh, where he would meet with them and he will speak uh, with them, Exodus 29.42. And again, in Solomon's uh, temple in 1 Kings uh, chapter 9, it says, my eyes and my heart shall be there perpetually. So that again speaks about the communion and the relationship that God wants to enjoy uh, with his people. And when we come uh, to the New Testament, uh, where we see the church as a body of believers, uh, again, we see in Ephesians 2.22, uh, in whom or in Christ, uh, we are built together for a habitation of God uh, through the Spirit. And in Matthew 18.20, where two or three are gathered in my name, there am I in the midst of them. And in 1 Corinthians 3.16, again, it conveys the same idea that God wants to live within us, where it says our bodies are the temple of God. And in, when we get to Revelation, we see that there is no temple, but God himself uh, shall be with them 
and be their God. So that is God's purpose from Genesis to Revelation, that he wants to live with us. He wants to enjoy communion with us. And obviously, whenever we fall into sin, uh, we lose that communion, we lose that uh, relationship. So we need to confess our sins so that we can restore that relationship and we can restore the first uh, experience of Adam and Eve when there was no sin and they enjoyed a full uh, communion with the Lord. And he ends in verse 16 uh, with the mystery of godliness. And he says, and without controversy, uh, great is the mystery of godliness. God was manifest in the flesh, uh, justified in the spirit, seen of angels, uh, preached unto the Gentiles, believed on in the world, received up into glory. So manifest uh, in the flesh, that speaks about the advent of Christ, where he took on a human form and he was born in a manger. He was justified in spirit. And we see that uh, in different places where the Holy Spirit is present uh, at the time of baptism, at the time of resurrection, at the time of transfiguration, and lastly, when he ascended. And seen of uh, angels uh, that happened at the time of his birth, it happened during after the temptation, uh, it happened at Garden of Gethsemane, and again as resurrection and the ascension. And Christ, uh, who was born in the manger, uh, was preached uh, unto Gentiles. Uh, it was done by the first church, as we saw, when they are when they were filled with the Holy Spirit, uh, they preached the gospel uh, to the Jews and to the Gentiles. And that is what Paul did. That is what Timothy did. That is what the disciples did and many others. And because uh, he was preached, uh, many believed uh, in the world. So many have been saved. Uh, many have been added to the church uh, because of the truth of the gospel, because of the power of the gospel. And lastly, it speaks about received up uh, into glory. So that was the experience of Lord Jesus Christ, or at least his earthly ministry uh, that began with being born in a manger and being received up into glory uh, after he had finished the work, uh, after he had completed the race. Uh, we see that he was seated at the right hand of the Father. So this verse uh, maybe captures uh, the life of Lord Jesus Christ uh, in one verse, uh, right from his birth uh, all the way to, to being received up uh, into glory. But uh, even though it says mystery of godliness, so obviously uh, it is not a mystery for us uh, because we are reading it uh, today. And uh, in 1 Corinthians uh, chapter 2, uh, in verses 6 through 16 or so, uh, where Paul ta again talks about the mystery, uh, where he says in verse 9, uh, I had not seen, near, nor ear heard, neither have entered into the heart of man the things which God has prepared uh, for them that love him. So oftentimes we just stop by just reading verse 9, and we say that we don't really know uh, what's happening, we don't really know the great things that God has done for us, but uh, immediately in the next verse, uh, Paul says, God has revealed them unto us uh, by his spirit. So, so when we put 9 and 10 together, we can say that uh, it was a mystery at some point. But when Paul is writing his epistles, uh, he is uncovering uh, many of the mysteries 
uh, that were a mystery before. And when he goes to 1 Corinthians 4.1, uh, he says uh, we should be stewards of the mysteries. Uh, so we cannot be stewards uh, if we really don't understand what the mystery is. Uh, we cannot be stewards of what we don't have or what we don't possess. So when he tells Timothy to defend the gospel and to defend the sound doctrine, uh, he is uh, asking Timothy to be a good steward of the sound doctrine. In the same way, all of us uh, need to be good stewards of the mysteries uh, that have been revealed to us, uh, the gospel that has been revealed to us. And this one is from the Old Testament. It's not uh, really connected to this, but uh, I like the phrase where uh, speaking about Samuel, that it says, let none of his word uh, fall to the ground. So whatever he received uh, from God, uh, he didn't lose uh, anything. So that is what the concept of stewardship is. Whatever the Lord has given to us, uh, we should not uh, treat it uh, casually. Uh, we should preserve the treasure that the Lord has given us, uh, which is the mysteries that have been revealed to us. So if the mystery is uh, still a mystery to us, then we need to pray that the Lord will open our eyes, the Lord will increase our understanding, and that we would read the Lord's word uh, regularly. If we read the Bible regularly, then the Lord will reveal the mysteries uh, that are in the scriptures. And we also need to be not only uh, be receiving the word, but we should also be good stewards uh, of the word that we are receiving so that we are able to share the word with others. Uh, we are able to witness about the word to others. And we are also living the word so that we are good testimonies and of what the Lord has done. So as we wrap up, um, so, so the list uh, that we saw, both for elders and deacons, uh, does the list imply that the leaders uh, should be perfect? And what are some other qualities uh, that we would expect uh, from the elders uh, in the church or from the leaders in the church? And whether all of these qualities uh, can also be applied to us, no matter who we are, whether we are elders or deacons, whether those qualities should also apply to us. 